Ink and Quill illuminates on literature, culture and beyond. That's cool, isn't it? Listen to the sound of some incredible readings. The Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. The imagery in China is so strong. It's a book about the human story. Ink and Quill. Something provoking. We have to think like a queen. Something thoughtful. History's fantasy, really. Something fun. See some naughty people trying to steal panda cubs. All here on Ink and Quill. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. A few years back, a documentary titled "Jilo Dreams of Sushi" became a hit, featuring 85-year-old Japanese sushi master Jilo Ono. The film awed spectators for his artisan spirit of continuing to perfect his kitchen skills even in his old age. Arguably, Jilo is seen as one of the very few of his kind. After all, in the era of mass production and where efficiency and productivity are the new norm, who else is willing to spend decades of their lives improving their craftsmanship? But as it turns out in the book *Masters in Forbidden City*, Jilo Ono isn't alone. Indeed, there are some people with the same spirit and work ethic. Here is our reporter Liu Ming with more. Standing in the very heart of Beijing, the Forbidden City is a must-see for any traveler. For some 600 years, this imposing palace complex had been home to 24 different emperors. Nowadays, as one of the top tourist attractions in China, it is a public museum that continues to attract a staggering 60 million visitors annually. For many tourists, no matter where they go, the Forbidden City seems to be based. In a hubbub of voices, but if you happen to go past its northern gate and then walk along the western wall of the Palace of Established Happiness, you will come across a much quieter courtyard, Xi San Suo, or literally the third residence in the West in English. In many Chinese films and TV dramas, Xi San Suo is known as the Cold Palace, a prison for imperial harem. For example. If the wife or concubine of an emperor fell out of favor, they would be banished to this isolated yard. Sometimes these unfortunate women would be left there until they met their death. According to legend, their ghosts are still roaming within the Forbidden City at night. Therefore, when morning comes, the living have to cry out so as to alert the spirits. Just like many urban legends, the story has been debunked to be a superstitious rumor. But as filmmaker Xiao Han discovers, Xi San Suo is a compelling place in its own right. The yard is a unique place. Of course, we've all heard about the legend of Xi San Suo being the haunting cold palace, but in reality, it is so lively. Once you walk in, you will spot the mottled walls and cats lounging in the sun. All the conservation workers of the Palace Museum work here. You can hear their mumbles and banters. Everything is so harmonious. In 2015, upon the 90th anniversary of the establishment of the Palace Museum, Xiao and his team came to the Forbidden City to shoot a documentary. 
However, instead of setting their focus on the past, Xiao zoomed his camera on people of today. In his three-episodes film, Masters in Forbidden City were known as 我在故宫修文物 in Chinese. The director displays a vivid group portrait of relic restorers at the Palace Museum's conservation department. Allocated into different teams, these specialists are responsible for the conservation, restoration, and research of over 1.8 million cultural relics. The antiquities they repair are quite diverse, ranging from bronze wares whose history could be dated as far back as 3,000 years, to the world-famous classical Chinese painting along the river during the Qingming Festival. Xiao Han says that he was constantly amazed by the sophisticated skills of those restorers during the shooting. We started shooting a little bit late. When we arrived, Mr. Wang Jin from the timepiece restoration team had already worked on a pair of gold-plated copper water clocks for four months. It took him another four months to restore the clocks back to their former glory. Can you imagine that when Wang first buckled down to this task, there were merely a heap of dusted gears and over a thousand of scattered clock parts. But now, on the top of the clocks, you can spot simulated water flows and mechanical chicks packing at rice. What a miracle he made! In 2016, the documentary series Masters in Forbidden City was aired on both television and video streaming websites. Once released, it instantly became an internet sensation, racking up over 6 million views. On Douban, a Chinese equivalent of IMDb, the documentary scores a sterling 9.4, which is much higher than the once sensational culinary documentary A Bite of China. The huge success of his documentary also prompted Xiao to publish a book. What my team and I want to present is not purely craftsmanship, but a state of living, a state of mind. I want my audiences to know that in this chaotic, giddy world, there are still a group of people living in such unruffled manner. I hope when they finish watching the film or reading the book, they can re-examine their own lives. Compared with the documentary that might be too short for some spectators, the namesake book is a collection of some more detailed, revelatory human stories. Compelling the interview transcriptions of 12 conservators, it is a close-up of their life, joys, sacrifice, and most of all, their ultimate devotion towards their works. For outsiders, being a relic restorer might sound like some effortless, edgy job. However, in the eyes of copywriter Lü Yao, restoration could be extremely laborious, humdrum, and time-consuming. There are lots of intricacies in terms of painting restoration. To remind a traditional Chinese painting that is stained, crisp, and flaking, one of the key steps is to remove the old backing paper. The backing paper is a thin layer of paper that fades with the painting tightly. So if you peel it away too hard, you will destroy the whole painting. You have to slowly twist and slap the paper with the tips of your fingers. 
Sometimes it will take one or two months to remove the old frame of a small-sized painting. As for conservators, patience and persistence are not only required in the honing of their skills. In this highly industrialized society, the apprenticeship system still prevails in the business. Before a master deems acceptable, apprentices have to wait for years before they are even allowed to touch an antique. In the Forbidden City, this apprenticeship system has been passed down over generations. Unlike the older generations, the new recruits of today all receive formal education from college. But when they start to work here, they have to comply with the tradition. In the first three years, they need to study with one master to perfect their craft. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? So I wrote intensively about it. Originally, I thought this ancient practice has already faded away throughout the time. I was curious about what kind of training they have to go through and why the system still exists. Gradually, I realized that this apprenticeship not only sharpens techniques but also trains mind and temperament. Flipping through the pages, it's easy to be drawn into a space that is isolated, tranquil, and slow-paced, which is in stark contrast to the outside world. In this small courtyard named Si San Suo, restorers silently stand against the powerful currents of time. Under their gentle touch, objects that were once buried in dust and metal resurrect and sing. Following centuries of silence, after listening to their songs and the stories of these dedicated craftsmen, readers will eventually understand what the craftsmanship spirit really means. It is the restless pursuit for perfection, unfailing passion for art, and indifferent attitude to fame and gain. However, someone may wonder how long these masters will survive in this day and age. After all, it's just a matter of time that technology replaces handcrafts. As the chief editor of Masters in Forbidden City, Xiao Han provides his answer. I don't think we have to have any regrets. There are young people who are willing to learn these handcrafts, but compared with their seniors, they will be armed with both modern technology and ancient techniques. Time alternates. But a documentary and a book will always capture the memories. That was Liu Ming introducing us to the book Masters in Forbidden City. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next, our reporter will discover how Chinese fantasy novels capture Western readers. Please don't go away. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. Welcome back. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong. From Game of Thrones to Lord of the Rings, these Western fantasies have captivated Chinese readers for years. But now, thanks to literary website named Wu Xia World, fantasy novels from the Middle Kingdom are also starting to enchant foreign readers. Our reporter Niu Hongling talks with Lai Jingping, founder of Wu Xia World, to discuss this particular genre and why it has gained popularity in foreign countries.
Would you mind tell me tell me more about your website? How popular it is?、Uh, Wuxia World right now is the largest、uh, English, chi- sorry, Chinese English translation website in the world. We have around three hundred, sorry, three point five to four million page views every day, and around three、uh, hundred to four hundred thousand unique IP visitors. So we have a you know, pretty good number of people from around the world who visit us. Yeah. So when you say around the world, is there a percentage of where they're from? The largest group are from America, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We have around forty、uh, percent come from、uh, North America, so U.S. and Canada. Around twenty、uh, percent come from、uh, Western Europe, and,、uh, and uh, I was surprised to find out that around twenty-five percent. Come from Southeast Asia, and、uh, I think that's because you know in the Philippines, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in these countries, you have a lot of ethnic Chinese people who are interested in Chinese culture, but they are not actually able to read or maybe even speak Chinese, but they do speak English. So they discover Wuxia World, and it's a conduit to a lot of、uh, you know Chinese novels and Chinese culture that they normally would not be able to access. So we're actually incredibly popular in Southeast Asia right now. That is very interesting. So why do you think these foreign readers like the kind of very well fantasy novel with a lot of Chinese characters in it? Well, I mean, I, I think they like it for the same reasons that the readers in China like it.、Uh, you know, we, we we often joke, but it, it, our reader base is actually almost identical to the reader base we see in China. You know, it's mostly people under thirty years of age, mostly tech savvy people that. Are male. I think our audience is 80% males under the age of 25 to 30. So you know we have a lot of young male readers, and and they enjoy this stuff. They enjoy the fantasy. They enjoy the, the fighting. They enjoy you know the all the imagination and the、uh, the, the fantasy worlds that you know, this brings to them. So I, I, yeah, that's my response. I think they like it for the same reason the Chinese readers like it. It's it's fun. Yeah, but don't you see any kind of similar kind of novel or? These kind、um, of entertainment in America, yes in and、Western、no.、World. See, see, this is it, this is interesting. In the United States, there is no online serial novel culture. It's just it's not there. Like we have serialized f- fiction, but that's mostly in let's say oh serialized comic books. Um, you know, like Marvel comic books. That's great. We have serialized TV series, but there isn't really a serialized sort of web novel, or even sort of serialized novels that that are this long.、Um, this is a really a new phenomenon that China has and the United States does not. So it was actually really interesting because a lot of our readers originally came from reading Japanese light novels. And so they would introduce our stuff to new readers as saying, "Oh, these are like Chinese light novels, except they're really, really long." So it's 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 really it really is a unique thing to China that we're bringing to the U.S. And、uh, I've seen a lot of different ways to try and describe it, but it it really is unique and something that that it's it's uh it's brand new. Yeah, in China, some of the readers started to trash talking these kind of novels, saying that the main character knows everything and is very lucky and always wins. Are these kind of comments happening? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Look, I mean, if there are flaws in the literature in one language. They're going to exist in every language. I mean, we're translators; we're not editors. We can't, we can't improve. We can, I mean, we can try our best to improve in certain ways, but we can't change the underlying essence of the stories.、Um, so the flaws that exist in Chinese, they're going to exist in English as well. And a lot of them are, you know, systematic flaws because, you know, for example, in Chinese, these 
authors get, you know, uh, let's talk about length, for example. Authors get paid by the word. So oftentimes you'll have a lot of chapters where there's a lot of things, a lot of words, but nothing really happens. And, you know, that's a common complaint in China. And it's an equally common complaint, you know, on the English language side as well. So the, the strengths and the flaws, they don't magically appear and disappear based on a change of language. The, the, the things you mentioned, they are absolutely remarked upon by, uh, by, by foreign readers as well. Yeah, so upon that, do you think um, this trend of popularity, these kind of novel get in Western world will keep going? Or how long do you think it can keep going? Well, to go back to something you know we were talking about a bit earlier, my personal feeling is that if we look at Japan, there's been a 20 to 30 year sustained effort to promote and uh, you know push Japanese culture in the United States, and the government has worked very well with the companies to do that, from everything from you know Sailor Moon to Dragon Ball Z, you know to anime to uh, you know to Pokemon. So there's been a sustained effort. In, on Japan's side to promote popular Japanese culture in the United States. And there hasn't been the same in China. So what we're doing is actually, to a certain extent, this first wave of bringing popular Chinese culture to the United States. Now, I, I believe that good things are universal. If it's good in Chinese, you can probably find a way to make it good in English. So as long as we keep uncovering and bringing over more good Chinese content, my goal is, and I think we shall see, more and more of this, you know, the fun Chinese stuff being brought over to the United States and hopefully being commended for it. Um, I think, you know, the uh, three-body problem that was uh, recently won the Hugo Award in, in, uh, in the United States a year or two ago. It's a classic example that there is good Chinese literature, and people like good literature no matter where it's from. What we need to do is to discover it, uncover it, translate it, and then make it there for people to read. Because you can have the best novel in the world, and that's no good if it's not in a language that's accessible to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You've been emphasizing on translating and saying you're a translator, not editor, won't change things. But there are a lot of complex Chinese theories and words and sometimes jargons in these novels. So when you translate it, do you downplay the importance of these words or try to explain every time? And uh, how, how does it work? See, that's one of the things that you really have to work on on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and there's a, there's a plethora of tools that you can use for that. For example, sometimes when you encounter a Chinese idiom like uh, sitting at the bottom of a well, then what I might do is, instead of translating it literally, I'll make it a much longer thing, and then I'll weave it naturally into the story as well, so it sounds like it's not something artificial. That's one technique you can use. Another technique you can use is you can use footnotes. That's something I don't like, but it's, it's a valid technique you can use. Um, a third technique that I've seen some people also use is, depending on what you're working with, there's some things that you can simplify because they don't add enough value to the product. For example, in Chinese, the exact familial relationship is, can be important, like uh, your relatives on your father's side versus your relatives on your mother's side. Yes. There's different terms of address. Does that really matter, though? Does it have an impact on the story itself in English or Chinese? And it usually does not. So in cases like that, instead of saying maternal uncle, I'm perfectly fine with saying uncle. You know, so, you know, it, some of it, it doesn't not really matter that much. But sometimes it does, and when it does, then we use other tools. So this is really a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, 
and it's, there's no cut and dry answer. Yeah. That's why you have translators not translating software. Yeah, I I get what you're saying, but I'm trying to um make a sp- specific to those like Xuanhuan kind of novel. They have this whole theory about different level of well when you're when you're trying to get yeah, upper I, I, level I, I, and I, weapons. I, I and, see what you're saying. Yeah, this is interesting because it's actually a lot easier in Xuanhuan and the Qi Huan than it was for traditional wuxia, because in Xuan Huan, Qi Huan, every single author is creating a brand new system out of scratch. So when they're doing that, in a lot of these novels, they also have to explain the system. They have to explain that, you know, uh, what, what is the Jingdan that's being formed in the body and why it's being formed. They have to explain why when you reach a certain level, you're ascending to a new level of power. So as long as we also put in the explanations and maybe add a little bit more that, you know, English readers need to read, it's actually, people accept it very well. And that's only for the ones that are more, you know, xiuxian, uh, that are more, you know, Taoism-oriented. For novels like Panlong, uh, Coiling Dragon, which I completed, it was a 800-chapter translation, it, it's actually much more, it was, it was always a much more Western novel. I mean, you have people with names like O'Brien, you know, O'Brien, or, you know, Linley, <laughs> you have Western names, and you have a lot of Western concepts mixed in. A lot of this, this literature, it's not purely so-called Chinese. It also mixes in a lot of things from, you know, from video games, from, you know, World of Warcraft. So, there, so in this genre, there's already a lot of mingling of concepts. Um, like, they'll talk about, you know, Mo Fa Li and, uh, you know, and how much they have left. That's mana. You know, this mm-hmm. is something that was brought over directly over from Western games. So a lot of it, and more of it than you might expect, would resonate on both sides, and there's less confusion than you might expect. So can we, can I understand it as, because of this, it's actually easier for foreign readers to accept and to love? Absolutely. If we look at the translation we did of classical wuxia, of, uh, of Jin Yong novels, I, I love and respect Matt unbelievably. Um, but when we were translating Jing's traditional classic martial arts novels, sometimes we would get maybe 50 to 100 page views for a chapter. Right now, we're getting, for our popular novels, we're getting 100 to 200,000 a chapter. That's a huge difference. And I think that speaks to, that it fundamentally testifies to the fact that some of the new stuff, it's easier for Western readers to get into because it has already merged a lot of Western concepts into it. Um, because when you create a brand new fantasy world from scratch, that's new to everyone, and you have to explain it to everyone. Um, whereas for a lot of the traditional martial arts, Wuxia novels, there's a lot of things that people, they assume you already understand, and so they don't go around explaining. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, your website is not the only website doing these kind of works. So do you have any communication exchanges <clears throat> with, with other websites? Yeah, we're, we're the largest website by far. We're more than double the, uh, the size of any other website. Um, but there's also some other great websites that are doing great work. Um, Gravity is another website that's uh, doing good work. Volaire Translations. I mean, there's a lot of small websites these days. Uh, and some of them are just more like, you know, one-person blogs. Some of them are smaller websites that are sort of like Wusha World, like five, ten people have gotten together to work together. So there's a small community of translators right now, and we're all on very good, very close terms with each other. Uh, we, we'll share advice with each other about translating. We'll give each other news that we hear about, you know, peop- about, about uh, just, you know, things that are happening in the translation scene. So we're a very tight-knit community, both the ones on Wusha World and in the, in the people in the community that Wusha World is a part of. 
Okay, thank you, thank you very much. This is very interesting, and absolutely, yeah. We hope in the future more people would know and read and understand more about Chinese modern literature. Lai Jinping, founder of the literary website Wu Xiao World, talking to our reporter Niu Hongling about how to translate and promote modern Chinese fantasy novels, as well as why Chinese novels are gaining popularity outside as well. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting things happening in the literary world, and we will keep you posted. To know more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. Until next time. Snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, ink and quill connects you with literature, culture, and writers in China and around the globe.